Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in me. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. My name is Mike Roth, and this is Story and Table, a personal and academic exploration of Christian ideologies and the systems that these ideologies sustain. Welcome to Story and Table. This is Season 1, Episode 4, A Bible Story, Part 2. In the last episode, A Bible Story, Part 1, I told stories about the Bible. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the story in the Bible. That's to say, the Bible tells a story that begins in Genesis, it rises throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and New Testament until, finally, it concludes in Revelation. With this in mind, the Bible has a narrative arc which is called a plot. A plot has five movements. First, background. Second, an inciting incident which makes the story go. Third, many layers of rising action. Fourth, the crescendo called climax. And fifth, the denouement, the conclusion, the end. Now, the most important part of a story is its inciting incident, also known as the problem. Because by the time we get to the climax of the story, the problem is either resolved, which makes the story a comedy, or the problem remains unresolved, maybe even exacerbated, which makes the story a tragedy. You see, the inciting incident and the climax are intrinsically connected when it comes to interpreting the meaning of a story. With this in mind, here's the Bible story's inciting incident, which is located in Genesis chapter 3. In this chapter, Adam and Eve eat from a tree that God told them not to eat from. The tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. After eating from the tree, Adam and Eve are filled with guilt and shame, and so they cover themselves with leaves. And when they hear God out on an evening walk in the garden, they hide behind the trees. Cursed, God sends them away east of Eden to live out their lives in this world that we humans call home. That's the inciting incident. I'll now talk about the interpretation of the inciting incident that's held by many Christians, especially in the United States. This interpretation actually has a name, which is original sin. According to the interpretation of original sin, Adam and Eve's disobedience abruptly and catastrophically altered the world and human beings became inherently depraved. Now, let's fast forward to the Bible story's climax, which is located near the end of all four Gospels. Side note, some scholars may say that the climax is actually closer to the end of the book of Revelation, but I'm intentionally choosing the end of the Gospels for two reasons. First, Jesus' death and resurrection is the climactic literary focus of the New Testament proven by four books, four Gospels, that all tell this part of Jesus' story. And second, whether the climax is Jesus' death and resurrection, or something closer to the end of Revelation, the interpretive points that I'm about to highlight do not change at all. And so, the Bible story's climax occurs when Jesus, the Son of God, is crucified on a cross, sometimes called a tree. His body is broken, his blood is poured out, and three days later he is resurrected to new life. 
I'll now talk about the interpretation of the climax that's held by many Christians, especially in the United States, which is, anyone who believes in Jesus' death on a cross and shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins is made new. No longer a child of Adam and Eve, but a child of God, citizenship is transferred from this world and an eternity in hell to a heavenly kingdom and an eternity in bliss. With all of this in mind, I'd like us to now consider an important question, which is, is today's common interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax a comedy or a tragedy? Now, remember, the inciting incident and the climax are intrinsically connected when it comes to interpreting the meaning of a story. If the climax resolves the inciting incident, it's a comedy. But if the climax is unable to resolve the inciting incident, it's a tragedy. And so let me ask this important question one more time. Is today's common interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax a comedy or a tragedy? Well, according to the interpretation of original sin, Adam and Eve's disobedience abruptly and catastrophically altered the world. And yet, in the climax of this story, the world did not immediately change back into something like Eden. Now, that's not good, is it? And according to the interpretation of original sin, all human beings became immediately depraved due to something that somebody else, Adam and Eve, did. And yet, in the climax of this story, when Jesus dies and rises, the curse of Adam and Eve is not immediately reversed. That's to say, nobody becomes immediately blameless. Far from it, in fact. According to today's common interpretation, only those who choose to believe in Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins become children of God with the hope of heaven. And that's not good either, is it? At best, this interpretation of the Bible story is a comedy for a few. Because it's only good for the few who believe. But for the rest of humankind? Well, for the rest of humankind, this interpretation is a horrifying tragedy because the majority of humans in this world remain depraved, citizens of the earth, and destined to a place of eternal torment called hell. And to add to the sorrow, according to this interpretation, Jesus is much less powerful than Adam and Eve because he is unable to immediately and fully reverse the damage that they caused. Now, before sharing a more coherent interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax, I want to explore the kind of table that this particular interpretation sets in the lives of people. One feature of the table that this interpretation sets is transactional faith. Believe these things, you are then saved, and you'll end up in heaven forever. It's this emphasis on belief that then becomes the most important moment of the human experience. Ah, oh, but, but what about the rest of our human experiences? What bearing does this story have on our lives outside of accepting this one thing? It makes me want to ask, is faith nothing more than one momentary transaction? I certainly hope not. And this brings me to a second feature of the table that this interpretation sets, which is a diminishing of the Bible. Here's what I mean. Reading the Bible through the lens of original sin makes little sense of Genesis chapter 4 all the way up to the point in each gospel when Jesus is crucified, buried, and resurrected. 
What then is the purpose of the stories, poems, prayers, and prophetic messages spanning from Genesis chapter 4 up to Jesus' crucifixion? What about Abraham, Exodus out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, life in the promised land, messages from the prophets, and exile in Babylon? I mean, why not just skip all of that? Doesn't it just get in the way? Because, according to this particular interpretation, those large swaths of scripture are pretty much unnecessary, useless in affecting the story in any significant way. And it's the same for Jesus' life, really. Because, according to this particular interpretation, other than perhaps including Jesus' miraculous birth, his life and ministry have little bearing on resolving the inciting incidents problem. And here's another feature to the kind of table that this interpretation sets, which is a calamitous insistence on the depravity of humans. Countless times I've heard parents who live within this particular interpretation state when their toddler or elementary kid or adolescent is spunky or pushing boundaries or questioning authority. They say something like, there, there it is, that, that depravity, that fallenness on display for all to see. Of course, another way to interpret a child's spunk or boundary pushing or questions could be they're growing, they're developing. They're doing the important work of individuating, finding their own voice, and learning in ways that make sense to them. But unfortunately, this interpretation isn't allowed by those who hold to original sin, and so for many, a child's quote-unquote disobedience is frightening, which is often transmitted through scolding, shaming, and at times violence to try and curtail a child's quote-unquote depravity. Similarly, this particular interpretation absolutely dismantles the notion of rehabilitation. Because how? How is any person capable of making change or healing or growing up into wisdom and goodness if they are truly and inherently depraved? That would be utterly hopeless, wouldn't it? And here's one more feature to the kind of table that this interpretation sets, which is bad news. If Jesus is the solution to the problem that Adam and Eve caused, then he is an impotent solution because he does not resolve everything that Adam and Eve broke. And the solution is inequitable because some people will never get to hear this particular interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax, so they won't even have a chance to believe the right things. Of course, there will be many, many countless others who do hear about this particular interpretation, but it won't make sense to them. Or, for one reason or another, they won't believe it. And so, you see, this interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax is absolute tragedy. Because the majority of humans throughout human history are going to a place of eternal torment forever, while only a select few end up in heaven. No, thank you. That's a terrible story. It's a violent story. It's a story rotten at the core with tragedy. And the tragedy upon the tragedy? Well, this whole notion of original sin was coined by Augustine, who was working off of a Latin translation of Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which led him to believe that all sinned in Adam. However, the Greek text explains, because all have sinned, indicating that we all sin in the way of Adam, rather than indicating that we all sinned in Adam. 
And this distinction you see is significant. In the former inaccurate interpretation, we are all, because of original sin, depraved at conception. But in the latter accurate interpretation, Adam is a typology for humankind, which is to say, we all, like Adam, sin. And so you see, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is actually about the way in which we all sin like Adam. And how do we all do that? Well, that's a great question. We're now ready for a more ancient interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax that isn't just literarily coherent, but unequivocally beneficial for human flourishing. Prior to the notion of original sin was the notion that humans are tasked with growing up from infancy into adulthood. About this process of growth, 3rd century church father Irenaeus explains, For as it certainly is in the power of a mother to give strong food to her infant, as the child is not yet able to receive more substantial nourishment, so also it was possible for God himself to have made man perfect from the first. But man could not receive this, being as yet an infant. According to Irenaeus, because it is physiologically impossible for humans to immediately grow up, we must begin, like all living things, at the beginning. However, as Genesis chapter 3 explains, Adam and Eve weren't okay with that. They wanted perfect knowledge like gods, thereby attempting what can be called wisdom grasping by eating the fruit. Now, about the fruit, listen to these words from 2nd century apologist Theophilus of Antioch. He writes, For there was nothing else in the fruit than only knowledge. But knowledge is good when one uses it discreetly. But Adam, being yet an infant in age, was on this account as yet unable to receive knowledge worthily. For now also, when a child is born, it is not at once able to eat bread, but is nourished first with milk. And then, with the increment of years, it advances to solid food. Besides, it is unseemly that children in infancy be wise beyond their years, for as in stature one increases in an orderly progress, so also in wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? And human? Yes. Based on this perspective, which very much aligns with Eastern Orthodoxy's interpretation, the divine invitation is to grow up into the wisdom and knowledge of God, which, in its fullness, is love. And yet, when Adam and Eve attempted to gain perfect knowledge without going on the very human journey of life, they came to know shame, guilt, and the experience of distance from the divine who invites each of us to, over time, grow up into all wholeness, goodness, and eventually love itself. With this interpretation of the inciting incident in mind, let's now reconsider the climax. Remember the tree, that tree called knowledge? Well, at the climax of the story, we see Jesus pinned to a tree. Not killing, but being killed. Not cursing, but declaring forgiveness. Dripping divine fruit and offering a different kind of knowledge, which you can't, like Adam and Eve, have now, take now, seize now. No, of course not. Knowledge about life and God, which is to say love, takes humans' entire lifetimes. Similarly, knowledge about life and God, which is to say love, takes humanity millennia. 
And with all of this in mind, I'll now share a few thoughts about the kind of table that this interpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and climax sets in the lives of people. One feature of the table that this interpretation sets is incredible hope. Adam and Eve did not cataclysmically alter humankind and the creation. They are simply an example of humankind's wisdom grasping to become like God without living life. And this is good news. You are not inherently depraved. You are wonderfully glorious and full of potential. And yet we humans do have a proclivity toward perfection now, always now, which is what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. But you see, this proclivity merely leads to shame and guilt because we're not perfect. And so, like Adam and Eve feeling bad about ourselves by failing to meet our own expectations, we hide in trees and cover ourselves with leaves. And this brings me to a second feature of the table that this interpretation sets, which is divine patience. In Genesis, it isn't God who impatiently desires Adam and Eve to grow up as fast as possible. That was Adam and Eve's desire, remember? It was God who graciously and lovingly commanded, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. With this in mind, this story sets a table that encourages patience. Patience with our own lives, patience with the lives of others, and patience with the development of humankind. Wholeness and goodness take time to grow up into. Mistakes must be made. Lessons must be learned. And this is the divine invitation to live out our lives on this earth while we grow, individually and as a species, into ever more goodness, wisdom, and ultimately love. For truly, is there any other path to progress? And here's a third feature of the table that this interpretation sets, which is literary coherence and unabashed comedy. That's to say, a really good story. You see, this interpretation helps to make sense of the Bible as a whole. Through this interpretive lens, it all matters. Every story, character, poem, prayer, and prophetic message, even Jesus' own life, bears witness to humankind's slow march toward wholeness and fullness. Reading the whole Bible, then, we're able to see, yes, of course, slowly, for there's no other way, but we are able to see a movement that progresses in the Bible from law to love, from obedience to grace, and from chaos to peace, as humankind slowly grows up into all wisdom and ultimately love. According to this interpretation, Jesus' entire life then is a revealing of what mature life in God, perfect love, looks like. And this brings me to a fourth and final feature of the table that this interpretation sets, which is a path into ongoing transformation and growth. Here's what I mean. Rather than wondering why Jesus' death and resurrection didn't immediately reverse the so-called effects of original sin, we can interpret Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the elevated pattern of Jesus' life in all four Gospels, as intentional anti-Adam narrative. It's through this interpretation, then, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection wonderfully resolves the inciting incident from Genesis chapter 3 by embodying a pattern, perhaps we should call it the way of Jesus, through which humans grow up into all 
knowledge. It looks like this. We live, we die, we resurrect. I'll say it again. We live, we die, we resurrect. Isn't that exactly how it happens? Like, we see things a certain way, that way of seeing eventually dies, and then a new way of seeing rises and becomes what we could rightly call new life. Or we think a certain way, but over time that way of thinking eventually dies, and a new way of thinking rises and becomes what we could rightly call new life. Or we do things a certain way, but that way of doing things eventually dies and a new way of existing rises and becomes what we could rightly call new life. For truly, is there any other way to grow, to transform, to evolve, to become? I don't think that there is. It is all life, death, and resurrection. Again and again, moment by moment, season by season, year by year, developmental stage by developmental stage. We individually and as a species, grow up into all wisdom, goodness, and ultimately love through life, death, and resurrection, the way of Jesus. And it's this way of becoming, you see, that over time leads to the flourishing and wholeness of all things, which is what we see at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 22. It reads, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. I'd like to pause just for a moment. Sometimes I find that it's helpful to replace the word God with the word love. It's a connection that we find in 1 John where we read that God is love. And so from Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of love and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there any more, but the throne of love and of the Lamb will be in it, and love's servants will worship love. They will see love's face, and love's name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord love will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. How good is that? A sacred story that encourages patience. Becoming takes time. A sacred story that instills hope. We can grow. A sacred story that reflects humankind's slow march forward. We are making progress. A sacred story that embodies an anti-Adam pattern for transformation and growth, life, death, and resurrection. A sacred story into which Jesus invites, come, come and follow after me. Well, that is a truly great story. It is a story of hope. It is a story of possibility. It is a story of becoming over time, the fullness of the knowledge of God, which is love itself. I'm guessing that if you grew up within the first interpretation of the Bible story that I told, you may now be wondering about the meaning of salvation. I'm going to talk about that in episode 5. 
It's possible that you may be wondering about the meaning of Jesus' shed blood, which relates to the theological idea of atonement. I'm going to talk about that in episode 6. And it's possible that you may be wondering what this all means for the afterlife, heaven and hell. I'm going to talk about that in episode 7. I do hope you'll listen to those episodes. For truly, stories set the tables around which we live our lives. And it is my sincere hope that your life is filled with good stories that set loving tables around which you are freed and inspired to flourish. Thanks for listening to Story and Table. If you find this podcast worthwhile, thought-provoking, or encouraging, will you share about it with your friends and family? And if you don't already support the work of Pearl Church, Will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org.